Frontier War Stories, episode 12. Um, before I go any further, um, I would uh, like to welcome everybody to Frontier War Stories. Um, and before I go any further, I'd like to uh, pay my respects to all Aboriginal people who fought in the Frontier Wars, which began as early as 1788 until, uh, and lasting until uh, the 1930s. That's roughly 140 years that Aboriginal people continued to fight. And when I say continued, um, you know, we still continue to fight uh, to this day. I would also like to pay my respects to all of our mob across this beautiful continent. Each episode, I will speak with different Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people about research, books and oral history, which document the first 140 years of conflict and resistance. These times are the frontier wars and these are our war stories. In episode 12, I chat to um, historian um, and associate professor Kristen Harmon, um, who done her PhD work um, on, um, on, on, on the frontier period and looking at um, how uh, the British colony would transport Aboriginal people as convicts, but also within this period of time, um, you know, Maori people would be transported as convicts uh, to Tasmania um, and different parts of Australia as well. Um, and and like I've, I've I've been fortunate enough to sort of have a conversation before this episode um, as well. We got to sort of break bread and have a conversation about sort of this period of time and and how important um, history is, and then also acknowledging, um, well, I guess. If it, maybe it was in, maybe it was in, the, in the time it was important to the people who deliberately left this part of history out, um, but you know it's important to acknowledge um, that these things happened. You know when we talk of you know the penal colony and convicts within Australia, we think of um, you know the convicts that Britain bought um, who were a part of their colonies, uh, but you wouldn't necessarily think of indigenous. Um, uh, convicts, um, you know, from here or or from Aotearoa. Um, in some cases, I know they brought um, African um, convicts, or who, who I guess I think were on on the first fleet and uh, as well. But you know, I guess without further ado, I'll introduce uh, my uh, guest on the program, uh, Kristen. Uh, thanks for joining us um, on Frontier War Stories. Um, it's been it's been a bit of a while. Um, I've been trying to track you down, but under COVID, uh, you've been a bit busy. Um, and and, and um, I, I think like everybody else, you know, being sort of clamped down by COVID as a result of COVID. Sorry, um, but no, thank you for coming on and um, having a chat with us and sort of sharing uh, your knowledge with us as well. Well, thanks very much for inviting me, Bo. It's really nice to be able to join you, chatting with you today from Hobart. Um, and and also, you know, I must admit as well, like when we first, um, you know, when we said our hellos, you were like, "Oh, it's a bit, it's a bit chilly uh, down here." And then I went on to sort of say, "Yeah, it's a bit chilly up here," but you know, I'd leave it at that because you know, anywhere south of uh, of Queensland, or main, main, I guess mainly Brisbane, when we say it's chilly, is, um, is, is really, really chilly compared to um, um, here. I'm sure it would be a summer for you guys, you know, how cold it gets sometimes up here. But, you know, um, 
you've um, done uh, some amazing research, um, put out some books, um, had some great reviews as well. Um, I think I believe one from Henry Reynolds, who you know, who eventually I'd love to get on the podcast and have a yarn about his amazing work um, that he has done in this field of of telling frontier wars. Um, um, telling the truth about Frontier Wars as well. But I guess sort of we'll just get it kicking off and started. Um, you mentioned that you sort of started your research um, as a – you started as research uh, for your PhD. Could you tell us what drew your interest in, in um, I guess, uh, the Aboriginal convicts uh, here in Australia? And I guess that would sort of, you know, broaden it up to sort of Māori convicts that were brought uh, to Van Diemen's land as well. Sure. So I don't know if you can pick it from my accent, but I'm originally from New Zealand and I've been in Australia a while, so I sound a little bit more Australian, I think, nowadays. But when I came to Tasmania in 1994, I was living here for a few months and I wanted to see a bit more of this island. And so I decided a little bit before Christmas to go up Tasmania's east coast aways and just across the water is Mariah Island, and you can get there by boat. It uh, takes maybe 20 to 40 minutes, depending how rough the crossing is. And when I went to Mariah Island, it's, it's a beautiful um, island that's now looked after by Parks and Wildlife, and there's lots of, well, for me, exotic wildlife, you know, wombats, kangaroos, these sorts of animals that you don't see in New Zealand. But what really struck me when I went for a walk up these hills, uh, all the dry long grasses, there were Cape Barren geese and everything. There's quite a small colonial cemetery up on the hills outside Darlington. And there was a number of headstones. And there was a particularly tall headstone, taller than myself. And inscribed in that headstone in Te Reo Māori uh, was words commemorating a Māori man who had actually died on Mariah Island in the 1840s. And that really puzzled me. And, you know, I couldn't at that time really understand why he was at Mariah Island. And it was only a few years later that I came to realise it was because at Mariah Island there had been a couple of convict probation stations and he was one of a group of Māori who had actually been sent to Mariah Island as a convict. And so when I started to research that further and want to find out more about that topic, I started to wonder then, well, if New Zealand had sent Māori men as convicts to the Australian penal colonies, what then was happening in the Australian colonies to Aboriginal men? And I remember asking this question and a well-known historian said to me at the time, oh, I don't think you'll find much out about that uh, because she didn't really think that Aboriginal men had ended up in the convict system. But once I started to take a look and I went back to colonial newspapers, I started to look at court cases looked at convict records, I began to find that there were in fact dozens, probably at least 60 Aboriginal men from down the East Coast colonies in Australia that had in fact been sent into the convict system. And then of course a few thousand in Western Australia who had ended up on Rottnest Island as well. Mm. 
Mm. Um, I guess just before we go any further as well, um, it's a very interesting topic. Um, I think, one, because, you know, um, you look at the sort of numbers of incarceration of Aboriginal people uh, today, um, and it's huge. You know, Aboriginal people, you know, Sadly, and I think in, in, in most states and sort of territories are the majorities uh, within prison, within the prison system. And that's from, you know, male prisons to women prisons down to sort of juvenile prisons. And some, you know, some, some, you know, in, in, in the Northern Territory, I believe, you know, sometimes throughout the year, you know, it's almost 100% of Indigenous peoples, uh, young Aboriginal Toshana kids that are sort of incarcerated um, in there as well. Um, you mentioned, I guess, uh, yeah. First one was um, the numbers. How many numbers of Aboriginal people did you see throughout your time, and how big was sort of the convict system um, uh, back then as well? Were they the minor- minority or the majority uh, within sort of uh, the convict system back then? Well, Aboriginal men would have been very much in the minority of the convicts, but. What had struck me as remarkable, really, was when I was trying to find out more about these few Māori sent to Mariah Island, nobody who had kept diaries or journals or whatever who visited Mariah Island while they were there in the late 1840s had really remarked on it. And I thought, well, that's really odd. Why is nobody writing about these Māori being in this convict system? You know, wouldn't they stand out? But... When I started to look into it, I found that while these Māori were at Mariah Island, there were also some Aboriginal men there as convicts and also some Khoi from the Cape Colony and a poor old San man, or they used to be called Bushmen in the days, who um, was elderly. No one could understand his language. Uh, you know, it was a very brutal system for such men to be part of. And it struck me then that the convict system itself was full of people from so many different ethnicities. You know, there, while they were in the minority compared with English and Irish, there were convicts from Spain, India, um, Denmark, Italy, all over the place. So I think we still tend to think about convicts as being mostly men, and there were quite a few women, the majority were men, and mostly white, but there were lots and lots of uh, convicts from all different backgrounds. But with the Aboriginal men and the convict system, I could find solid evidence for at least 60. There could have been more because not all of the records have survived, particularly from those first few decades. So some records were destroyed or in the very early years, not very good records were kept. Uh, so... Oh, and 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 you know when you're just saying those early periods, how early are you talking about? Well, the first ones that I found evidence of were in the very early 1800s. So around 1805, where you've got those colonists that had invaded Sydney, they started to move up the Hawkesbury River. To start with, things seemed. Mm-hmm. harmonious up to a point and there's certainly accounts of Aboriginal women living in quite happy relationships with some white men uh, and so forth but then over time more and more of these white people took over that 
riverbank with all of its resources and all of its significance with the local peoples and conflict starts to break out there. And as conflict starts to break out increasingly around Sydney, we end up seeing Mosquito, whose name may be familiar to a number of Australians nowadays, quite a high-profile Aboriginal man and his countrymen, who was known to the colonists as Bulldog, they ended up being captured and ultimately sent off to Norfolk Island, where, as I understand it, the man known as Bulldog actually died. Mosquito ended up being sent here to Tasmania and ultimately ended up, he was working actually for a while for some of the colonists and in particular the well-known settler Edward Lord, but ultimately ended up living with some of the Tasmanian Aboriginal people and got involved in some of their warfare against the colonists here in Tasmania. And as a result, Mosquito ended up being hanged, actually, in Hobart. Yeah. Um, so they were the sort of earliest cases, but um, there are a lot more cases, you know, from the sort of 1820s onwards. Mm. And uh, I guess, you know, one of the reasons why... Um, want to sort of chat with you as well and sort of explore this uh more as well is um and and also you know i guess one of the reasons why i sort of wanted to delve into sort of this period of time as well um it's an amazing sort of uh history um that we find out when we sort of start digging um further and further into it and sort of looking at um I guess, you know, how pivotal individuals were in sort of different period of times and how that influenced, you know, whether that was sort of the policies of the day or sort of the resistance, you know, um, you know, this period of time as well. And, um, you know, essentially Aboriginal people are being criminalised uh, for existing um, and also how they sort of react um, to sort of one British law uh, but then also, I guess, um, you know, the British, the continuation of the of the British colony breaking um, Aboriginal law. You know, it, it's it's you know th- this you know th- this sort of period of time before 1901, uh, before the Federation of Australia. It's sort of a continuation. It's of sort of that um, you know two laws you know um, existing. Um, in one area and 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 one not necessarily taking a backward step um and sadly you know you know i guess you know aboriginal people were living result of sort of that history um you know aboriginal people were criminalized and demonized due to their resistance to these things as well um you know how far did sort of you know, your studies, you know, take you where where else as well, and sort of um, who were you sort of looking at as well, or, or were you sort of drawn to different places, um, and and how far forward does sort of um, your work sort of stretch, you know, it, or is it sort of just the earlier sort of early eighteen hundreds uh, um, um, uh, time 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 frame time period? Sure. Well, really, uh, in looking at this particular phenomenon of Aboriginal men being put into the convict system on the east coast of Australia, it stretches right up to the 1860s. And what I found was you could really see a very strong pattern. So 
as these colonists invaded new areas, they would go to what became Melbourne, say, or they would arrive in Sydney and then span out from there, whether it be to the cow pastures or up to Maitland um, and so forth from Sydney or in Melbourne, they were spreading out in all directions and more people coming across from Van Diemen's Land as Tasmania used to be. Where these people went, and they were predominantly white people, you would find that they would often, but not always, establish some friendly relations initially with some local Aboriginal people. There are some exceptions. Some of the colonists from Van Diemen's Land simply went to Victoria with the aim of killing Aboriginal people on land they wanted for themselves because of what they had learned, if you like, um, in Van Diemen's Land mm. from the experience of war here. It was a very ugly history. But fundamentally, you would see these arrangements, and so these white people would go out to an area which for them was remote, but was in fact someone else's country, fact which they must have recognised at least up to a point. And then we would see Aboriginal people having some quite... Um, it's like everyday type interactions with them. So an Aboriginal man, for example, might chop wood for them, fetch water, and then he might be given, you know, some beef or damper or something like that. So there's mm. an exchange economy going on. But over time, as more and more white people come, and as Aboriginal people, I guess, are having far less access to their usual resources, there's more people encroaching on country, and without the white people having an idea about Aboriginal boundaries, as porous as those might have been, they're shoving people off onto other groups' country. Tensions are rising, and it's really once these tensions arise, and some of these white men too, they're not all living in family situations, some of these white men are taking advantage of Aboriginal women. And then we start to see, you know, you can see it in the columns of the colonial newspapers, You'll see then that Aboriginal men will then attack that particular white offender. So it's like they're exacting retribution, you know, their laws coming into play. And so the tensions build up, there's these altercations, and it's these Aboriginal men that are well known and recognisable uh, that the settlers are arresting, taking into custody, and putting through the court system. It's not so much Aboriginal men from further afield, some of whom combined into large fighting forces I mean, that could also be captured in those circumstances. But you just see this whole pattern as more and more white people fan out across parts of country. Uh, this whole pattern unfolds. And ultimately, the final sort of act under which Aboriginal men were being arrested and then transported was as these townships grew and became more established, some of them were being arrested for vagrancy because they may have been scantily clad, they may not have had many material possessions and westernised, so they could be arrested as vagrants and then jailed and transported. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, yeah, you know what I mean? Like for the for like I guess you know, minor things or you know things as little. Uh, that they could be arrested for as well. I remember uh, chatting with Libby Connors 
um, about her book um, Warrior um, about Dunderley uh, here in um, southeast Queensland, in particular in the Brisbane area and region. Um, and he was eventually captured while sort of uh, working here in sort of southeast Queensland, um, southern, I think it was like maybe northern or southern Brisbane. Um, he was, he was working. I think chopping wood as well or something. Um, and it's funny as well because I believe like um, quite a few um, and and this is and also when I was chatting with Callum Clayton Dixon who who did um, a book um, about where he's from the um, the New England Tablelands area um, and, and the sort of frontier conflict as well that Aboriginal people would usually sort of. Um, um, work um with sort of uh settlers on their sort of on their you know so-called land uh, that these settlers acquired um you know doing odd jobs and like you said you know getting paid you know through whether it's food seeds um in some cases weapons as well i think ammunition uh in some areas in 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 um in in the new england tablelands area when i was chatting to callum um but you know it's funny because, you know, in these times, Aboriginal people, you know, th th there wasn't, I guess, you know, photographs, you know, um, of sort of wanted people uh, hanging around, you know, um, on the billboards or, you know, um, on a door somewhere, you know, in the newspaper or whatever. Um, so there was this sort of suspicion and like you mentioned, and I guess sort of this is where it played into sort of arresting sort of Aboriginal people for, for minor offences or for minor things just you know, one, because of, you know, they think that this person is somebody who was a part of sort of a um, a siege or, or sort of a resistance on, on some pastoralist or um, or on some travellers or, or whatnot as well. Um, and, 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 and so they were saying that, um, yeah, you know, when some of these mob would be on the run to sort of hide out, they'd be working sometimes in plain sight you know, with sort of some people um, till time would pass and then I'd go out and raid again, then I'd go somewhere else and find some more work as well. And I just thought that was that was interesting in one way, but then also it sort of played into the hands of the colony to sort of figure out who these individuals was and, I guess, you know, find their patterns, I guess, and then eventually apprehend them. You know, this is one of the ways that Dundley was caught and I believe this is one of the ways that um, Yeagan was caught, as, caught and killed as well. Um, in Perth was, you know, befriending um, some other white people and, you know, after sort of holding a resistance, I think, when um, all being known as sort of this resistance fighter and starting a relationship up with some white people, eventually he was sort of shot and killed. Um, and sort of, you know, different sort of warriors in different parts of the countries, you know, who had sort of these relationships with these white fellas, whether it was before, you know, the conflict and, and, and before they were involved in the resistance or even during or after, and that sort of played into the hands of how they were captured as well, um, which I find um, interesting as well, like, you know, sort of, you know, you know, working in plain sight and, and not necessarily sort of knowing who or where they are or, or, or yeah, I, I just thought that was funny as well. But I guess sort of back onto what we, what you were saying as well, um, um, it's amazing to sort of see how, um, I guess, one, you know, quick 
Aboriginal people were getting incarcerated, uh, like you said, um, as early as sort of the early 1800s um, in different parts of, I guess, the East Coast and in particular, uh, I guess, up and around Sydney as well. Um, and I remember, you know, and, I, and I'm sure lots of people, you know, who may listen to this have seen Utopia um, and there's a scene where John Pilger heads to Roburn, no, sorry, sorry uh, Rottnest Island, uh, and Rottnest Island, um, I, I guess now, uh, and I'm, I've never been there, and I'm, I'm sure it still is. It's a, a resort, you know. It's a luxury. Oh, I don't know if it's a luxurious, but sort of it's a small island off the east coast. Sorry, the west coast of of Perth. Um, that sort of yeah, a holiday home for families. But you know, like I'm sure you'll sort of unpack a bit more as well. Is it was used um, as a penal colony, uh, as a penal um, uh, setup to house. Uh, convicts and in particular Aboriginal convicts. Um, could you sort of give us a bit of background about what you found out about sort of uh, Roburn? Uh, sorry, oh, to keep, oh, sorry, to keep, to keep mentioning Roburn uh, about sort of Rottnest Island and and how that sort of began and you know um, and and yeah, some more about how many Aboriginal people were incarcerated there. Sure, I, I can understand you mentioning Roburn actually, Bo, because that was one of the key places uh, because there were right down Western Australia there were places like Rayburn from which mm. men were rounded up and I should say boys as well so some of the Aboriginal males sent to Rotten Island were really young right so single digits in terms of their age oh, young so some were boys as well as as men of different ages but essentially, Rottnest Island began to be used. And my understanding is that for Aboriginal people local to that region, that island isn't a place that they would have necessarily used and visited, right? I don't think it was considered that type of place. So this wasn't really a great place to be sent. But Men and boys from a vast wave of Western Australia were sent there. We're talking about more than 4,000 over a period of decades as this stretched into the 20th century. And when I, I've actually visited there a couple of times and it just strikes me this um, bizarre thing you're talking about how nowadays you go on quite a reasonably flat catamaran and it's a resort and there's this real sense of holiday making, Western Australians have to go into a ballot system because too many people want to go and only a selective number uh, can go to really? to yeah. stay. Um, I just I bought a ticket and I was glad I stayed overnight because it was only after the last boat went back to Perth for the day that it was a lot quieter. And I went for a walk and you could see some of the very early buildings, the convicts we were taken there. The first Aboriginal men taken there, I think we chained up, kept in a cave on the island, but were put to work to build actual buildings. And there's some very early buildings there. Uh, and then later a quadrangle was built in which these prisoners were kept and they, they were put to work and they worked on producing salt and so forth. But one thing that really struck me there when I walked just a little way from the, the very small settlement there is there's a colonial cemetery and it's got some very old and quite ornate headstones and I seem to remember in my mind I can see like, you know, a concrete angel, that sort of thing. But just across the pathway, 
now fortunately fenced off completely is the Aboriginal burial ground. And it has some eucalypts growing there. And my understanding of this is that after discussion with various Aboriginal people, uh, that they don't want or need actual grave markers there. So it's just, it's fenced off, uh, it, you know, people aren't walking over it. But it was just such a contrast to stand in this path and looking at those two quite different cemeteries, if you like. Uh, it was really poignant, but it was a very different atmosphere in that evening when things were quite still and calm and quiet, you know, with all the bicycles, the children, uh, the family groups that all gone back to Perth. Mm, you know, definitely quite interesting. Um, have you come, like, through your studies, have you come across anything else like that where um, essentially sort of, yeah, a prison camp um, has, you know, or, or is now sort of turned into sort of a resort or or something other than sort of what it originally was or, you know, trying to maybe forget its sort of horrible past, but, you know, where sort of it's turned into something that, you know, I guess people would would in some cases sort of, you know, um, it'll just go over their head in terms of what, you know, those places. Well, first, you know, did you see any pamphlets in terms of, on the island, uh, talking about what it used to be, you know, were there sort of other than sort of the grave sites and sort of, I guess, your research, you know, were there sort of many indicators when you were, I guess, on the Perth side before getting on the ferry going over to look at, um, you know, Rottnest? Um, were there indicators to say what it was? When I went over, I hadn't seen any indicators ahead of time, although I had read uh, an extensive and insightful, almost like a dictionary of biography of Aboriginal prisoners who had been housed there that Neville Green and Susan Moon had put together. So I'd read the accounts, look, some are a few lines, some can be a couple of paragraphs about these men and boys. So I felt I'd become reasonably familiar with parts of that history. But when I got there, there is a visitor's uh, centre that had just a tiny bit of information. I imagine that they might have a little bit more available now because this would be probably 10 years ago. But it's interesting you ask about, you know, sites like this because I also found similar things both in New South Wales and here in Tasmania because when I went to Sydney uh, on one of my visits, I caught the ferry and went to Cockatoo Island. And Cockatoo Island has a quite a layered history. There's layers of history from its original usages through to it being used as a convict site and then through to more industrial sites. And nowadays I think people can go there and do art classes or see exhibitions and so forth. But there were a number of Aboriginal convicts there and I found that that history just seemed to be totally forgotten. And it was actually Goat Island and Cockatoo Island and Sydney Harbour were used to house Aboriginal convicts and they died um, so soon after being incarcerated. So one of the things about Aboriginal men in the convict system is only a very, very small handful survived to go home. Most mm. died within their first year. And one of the things that I think most people don't realise about it was that because of these deaths in these islands in Sydney Harbour, 
1851, there was a formal inquiry into these Aboriginal deaths in custody. And when, what in, time, sorry? 1851. 1851, that, that's interesting. A long time yes, ago. yes. And the authorities at that time decided that if an Aboriginal prisoner was becoming ill or could die in custody, that they should actually be released, not simply be kept locked up. So it was uh, relatively progressive. The other site, too, uh, it takes us back to where we started, really, back to Mariah Island off the coast of Tasmania. That is a place where you can actually sleep in what was uh, the convict probation station. So it's, because it's run by Parks and Wildlife, it's a much more, I suppose you'd say, sort of camping slash uh, basic cabin type experience. It doesn't have quite the same park feel that I found at Rotnest mm. Island from my experience. Uh, but, you know, and people are very, very aware of the convict history there. And there is a little hut set aside, not the one where the Maori would have lived, um, I don't believe, but there is one hut set aside that's got some um, basic interpretations about the fact that Maori were there. Nothing, I don't think, though, about the Aboriginal men or the, the Khoi and San who spent time there too. Mm, mm. You know, it, it's interesting... Um that you, you found that letter from um, uh, eighteen fifty-one. I actually just googled it while while you were, we were chatting. Um, eighteen fifty, sorry. Um, yeah, you know, it, it's quite interesting um, that you know um, how stark sort of history is in terms of um, yeah the, the over incarceration of Aboriginal people and sort of the life expectancy, I guess or the likelihood of sort of Aboriginal people dying within sort of that system or becoming ill, or already ill, and then, you know, as a result, you know, um, due to sort of, you know, I guess racism playing a huge factor in that um, instance of Aboriginal people dying. Um, that was happening, of course, would, you know, I guess you'd be, it'd sort of be silly not to sort of, you know, think that, it w of course, would happen back then as well. Um, but, yeah, no, I thought that was... Um, Quite um, yeah, um, quite an interesting find, um, and I would definitely love to sort of you know, um, continue this um, conversation about this as well. But I guess we'll sort of just sort of continue to roll on as well. Um, I did something you mentioned that I hadn't picked uh, picked up on earlier. If you don't mind, why oh, of course, an please, earlier please thread about. Yes discussion because it struck me as um, an interesting point that people might not be aware of mm -hmm. that could you know fascinate them but certainly in the 1830s in the Brisbane Water District which is north of Sydney at a time mm -hmm. when hundreds of Aboriginal men had come together to try and drive out the white people that had started to set up little farms there the Colonists actually made posters for wanted Aboriginal men. I don't think they were necessarily illustrated, but they certainly named them and offered, you know, a ten pound reward. Because I think some of the Aboriginal men were very well known, and I guess the colonists hoped that either, you know, some of these farmers or convicts, or possibly they might have hoped other Aboriginal men would dot them in to get the money. Um, so they certainly did have kind of wanted posters. And another way, too, that Aboriginal men were sometimes captured, and this, I think, cuts to the core of a, a really big issue with Australian history, 
is that we talk a lot about frontier violence and frontier conflict. And even as we have today, we talk a lot about these white colonists, settlers, invaders, the Aboriginal people in the area, but almost always missing are these red coats. So these British soldiers, these regiments came out with the first conflict transports and they were in Australia and New Zealand through to 1870. They were here for decades. Mm, mm. And certainly in 1816 when Macquarie sent out his punitive parties against Aboriginal people to the cow pastures around present-day Camden, there was um, an Aboriginal man there called Jewel who was, one of the men captured. I mean, they also hanged some of the Aboriginal men and there were, the Athen massacre took place during the same action, right? But one of the Aboriginal men captured there was banished to Van Diemen's land and sent down here as a convict. He, in fact, was one of the few who did manage to return home and later continued work he'd done earlier as an expedition guide. He had even uh, been in his first... Uh, Act of guiding that I've read about was with Hamilton Hume, the white explorer that the Hume Highway is named after. So mm. this man, Jewel, was captured actually by these red coats. And I could see in uh, court trials, so a number of the Aboriginal men were sentenced in court either to transportation or some were sentenced to death but later reprieved and transported instead. But they were given a choice. While they couldn't have an Aboriginal jury, and it was quite contentious that they had to have a white jury because in countries like India, where the British had been, uh, Indians coming up in court could have a jury that was half white and half Indian, but mm. in Australia that wasn't allowed to happen. But they were given the choice sometimes between having a civilian jury or a military one, and every time, every time you would see the Aboriginal defendant would say, no soldier. You know, and I think that tells us mm. quite a lot about what Aboriginal people had experienced and thought about these red coats. Yeah, I remember chatting with Lyndall Ryan because um, her earlier stuff on the frontier periods. Um, she done some stuff about my country in northern New South Wales, Gamilara country, um, and then also Tasmania. And then you know later on now, uh, she start she has sort of been you know doing stuff on massacres, uh, the massacre map as well, um, which you know I, I urge the listeners uh, to 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 go search that out and just have a look at the massacre map as well. Um, some great information um, that. Lyndall has continued to put out, but she mentioned the exact same thing about this sort of long, long period of time of, excuse me, um, the redcoats, the British uh, military so soldiers, and um, and how they occupied country, um, and when and how they were used as well. So she mentioned, um, you know. Um, families from as far as Tasmania, you know, who were pastoralists and had a big head of cattle, um, found out really early that sort of Tasmania w would, wasn't, couldn't hold the capacity of sort of the cattle that they had. Um, and so they would ship them from there to Victoria. Then I think, you know, um, maybe the weather was, I, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know. Um, for some reason they slowly just sort of gradually moved up to sort of northern New South Wales um, and sort of like southern Queensland 
Um, and she tracked through like the the records and stuff as well that, you know, nearly everywhere they went, they were sort of met by resistance. Um, but then also as well, one, they sort of had, you know, British um, or sort of military or, or I guess later maybe uh, police sort of um, escort as well, um, you know, well, um, she was mentioning how sort of the military was continued to be used um, in that sort of form to sort of terrorise Aboriginal people um, and to sort of you know, scare them um, senseless um, as well. And I remember chatting um, um, another episode I did um, on on uh, Fronty Wars in... in um, in Victoria as well, and how sort of, you know, British soldiers, you know, even before getting off the ships, you know, they just fired cannon, you know, 12-pound cannons at Aboriginal people on the shore, um, you know, and, and, and heading into sort of, you know, uh, this huge campaign against Aboriginal people uh, in that part of uh, Victoria. Um, I believe it's like episode seven um, or eight um, in on Frontier War Stories. Um, but then also... Um, I was chatting with, I think it was still with um, with uh, Lyndall Ryan. Um, she mentioned how later on, um, when the police force became more prominent um, in Australia, you know, they were either ex-soldiers or the son of sort of, you know, these redcoats or grandchildren of these redcoats, you know, who, who had some, you know, who, you know, there was like a long line of sort of, you know, um, the people who were employed by uh, the police forces in Australia who were sort of carrying out um, massacres, you know, um, in, in particular in Queensland as well. They were former, you know, soldiers or they were military trained or, you know, they, they, they just, you know, uh, whenever sort of somebody of their sort of calibre and skill applied or sort of wanted to be a part of, you know, um, um, are their force like you know they, they would happily sort of you know sign them up and and let them be a part of sort of that as well. One, one I guess you know the, the sort of obvious reason would be because of you know their I guess um, experience within sort of warfare as well, um, and sort of you know how they how they could read the country as well and get through it and and and, and yeah handle themselves out there as well. So yeah, and I know I remember chatting over the last you know, a few episodes about this exact thing about, you know, how sort of British soldiers were sort of used um, and, and the police force um, were used as well and sort of what fear that sort of instilled within sort of, you know, um, different Aboriginal communities um, when they would sort of, when they would know that their presence is here. Um, you know, um, Aboriginal people would sort of, you know, really sort of feel um, that, um, who they who they were and, and all this thing as well and, um, feel that presence of 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 what happened, and you know, I guess what could happen if they still continue to do what they were doing um, as Aboriginal people resisting. But yeah, now I remember chatting with quite a few people about that. Um, so it's, yeah, it is very interesting to sort of see how um, you know the British sort of were used as well. And also, I remember chatting with Libby Connors. And and she was saying she found documents where, you know, there was correspondence between the colony here in New South Wales, oh, sorry, the Sydney colony, and um, and 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 also back from Britain, and they were mentioning how um, um that they didn't want, you know, the British didn't want to to get a colony, um. To, to win a colony by bloodshed like they did in the past. You know, they wanted to sort of occupy and sort of, you know, this to be their colony 
in a new in a new light, but you know, like you were sort of mentioning, how sort of British soldiers were sort of used and and the tactics that they used and how they sort of you know drove the fear into Aboriginal people um, in these times. Then you could really you know see how, um, yeah, you know, like sort of they did the opposite to sort of you know what this correspondent was. You know, they, oh, absolutely. They, they did it exactly by sort of that way of terror uh, and force and sort of, you know, um, usurping sort of the power um, from Aboriginal people, you know, the culture and the law from Aboriginal people and within this time as well, yeah. There's no doubt about it. And I mean, this tool of terror, certainly the red coats and later the various forms of police were used as a tool of terror one of the colonial judges too also talked about convict transportation as a tool of terror because his reasoning was that if you transport Aboriginal men, their families and people don't know what's happened to them. If you hanged them, there would be a body and they would know the outcome. So his mm. thinking was that this absence of the men and the people left worrying and wondering and not knowing what had happened to them that it was a way of terrorising their communities mm. and, you know, making them be compliant and back down from their acts of resistance. Mm. But with the um, convicts, you know, with the convicts coming, like basically a lot of convicts ended up in the Australian colonies, the ones that were sent from England and Ireland and so forth. Quite a few of them had been soldiers in the Napoleonic Wars, but after the end of those wars, a lot of those men ended up pretty much unemployed and ended up one way or another being sent as convicts. And some of them had deserted too as soldiers. So a lot of these convicts had been soldiers and they tended to be the first pick for the new police forces being established. So mm. they were men that had some of that training. Uh, I think one of the weird things I found, I think, moving to Australia, though, growing up in New Zealand, we were aware of the New Zealand wars. We were aware that it was these soldiers as well as settlers fighting um, mostly on one side and then Māori on the other, although in New Zealand some Māori fought with the colonists and some few colonists known as Pākehā Māori fought with Māori. It's complicated, right? But when I came to Australia, I was absolutely astounded to find at that time, a couple of decades ago, that there were people trying to argue that frontier warfare didn't even happen here. Mm. And even to this day, if you look back at colonial art, occasionally you see a couple of red coats in the background and there are a couple of well-known or more you know, a handful of well-known images showing fighting between soldiers and Aboriginal people or even, you know, massacres in progress. Mm. But but they're largely absent. Um, it's kind of this sense in Australia, different from New Zealand, where there isn't this understanding of the huge role the military played in these conflicts. Mm. Well, it's funny that even you... Even still. It's funny that you mentioned that as well. Um, a brother boy uh, of mine actually... Uh, he's from South Australia. He's um, he, he's Merning, um, um, and he lives in Newcastle now. And I've, I don't know. He used to work at. It might have. I forgot where he used to work at. But he was saying um, he just went in there to say hello to his boss, his old boss, and and his old boss's partner. And she was like, "Oh, I found this old painting." Um, and a, 
um, he, he ended up burning it last night because it's just very racist. Um, I think it says on here it was, it was made in like either 1887 um, as well. And like the – so the back image is pretty much the British uh, flag, the Union Jack. On there it has – it's either like Captain Cook or I, I don't know, like, like a, really, a really early sort of um, – notable like uh european person with sort of like um i don't know like an endeavor or sort of a first fleet uh ship uh type thing whatever and then it has an aboriginal person um standing tied up to some sticks some poles and then another british person whipping him and um oh. yeah and then like some chains in there it's very it's really depictive as well so um it's interesting you know, that like, yeah, you know what I mean? Like when when yourself came here or even myself or many other Aboriginal people, like um, we just, yeah, it, it was just never recorded. It was never told. And then, you know, when people like Henry Reynolds or, you know, uh, Libby Connors and uh, and Lyndall Ryan sort of approached this field and were started doing work, you know, they were discredited. And then also they went through this period of what they called it the history wars, you know, whether or not... <coughs> um, uh, their work was you know, justifiable or actually true because all these conservative, uh, you know, redneck sort of um, historians were sort of denying that this thing would happen. And I guess not just them, but maybe the establishment as well didn't want you know the world to know about sort of this really insidious past that Australia um, had. But yeah, no, I, I just wanted to sort of share that with you as well because I think um, it's a very interesting piece of artwork. Um, and then, yeah, he uploaded a video last night of him burning it. <laughs> um, funny enough as well. Uh, I, I should have told him to sort of keep it and we, sh we should have tracked down the artist. Um, but, yeah, it's it's an interesting piece. Um, and also to yeah. think, you know, um, yeah, you know, like, 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 like that's a big discussion and, and sort of a, you know, lots of, you know, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people, you know, um, and I guess other Indigenous folks and non-Indigenous people sort of compare, you know, what it's like to sort of live under or sort of in a system that sort of acknowledges uh, your history, your culture, um, and then sort of living in a society where it doesn't, you know, like um, – there's always sort of this look towards New Zealand um, and, and, and how sort of Māori um, culture and history has been embraced compared to sort of um, here or maybe even, you know, the other states or sort of other places around the world. But in particular here, you know, um, and like you just mentioned, you know, like um, when you first moved here and there wasn't sort of this acceptance of sort of Aboriginal history and culture as you know for for maori culture it's totally different like how uh, people accept it and sort of come forward to sort of embracing it as well um and it's funny too you know because us as aboriginal people we're sort of like oh yeah that's just how it is you know and other people are like very shocked and very confronted by sort of the reaction um from aboriginal people or from you know non-aboriginal people who sort of like oh well it never happened or it was in the past, just get over it, you know, sort of that um, point of view as well. But um, I, I sort of, b before getting to the end, as uh, we're coming to the end as well, not too far off, but I'd love to sort of chat to you as well about a few different points. Um, one that's very interesting, very intriguing, is the incarceration of young people as well. Um, in your research, um, you know, 
w- were these young people involved, you know, in, in front of your walls or sort of, you know, w- you know, were they just caught sort of stealing things? Or actually, maybe just scratch that as well for now. Um, in your sort of research, when looking at this history, um, and in particular the incarceration of young Aboriginal boys, um, how, how, I'm sure it was confronting, but, you know, um, how was it, how did you come come about finding about it as well and and was it sort of practised, you know, all over the country as well? And um, I'm sure it would be hard for you to sort of figure out um, how young how young they would have been as well. Sure. I think really from the records I found in the eastern part of Australia, it seemed to be more, you know, young adults through to even quite old men, uh, the oldest, or one of the older ones being a man known as Yanangona or old Billy Billy from around Mount Arapilly. He and his people had been involved in trying to drive off uh, some colonists that had set up a big station. So they'd actually managed to drive, you know, hundreds of sheep off uh, in an effort to economically sabotage that operation. Uh, he he's probably at the older end of things, and there's there's a really poignant account. I mean, it's very difficult to read a number of these records, obviously, but there's a very poignant account. A woman had kept a diary at Norfolk Island, which is one of the places to which she was sent because the convicts would be moved around quite a lot. And she said about this elderly Aboriginal man that whenever he thought of home, he would cry. You know, um, that was just, you know, pretty heart-wrenching stuff. And he, he was later transferred here to Tasmania uh, where he unfortunately passed away. But the younger ones tended to be more in Western Australia and the way that these boys were captured was really because they had been involved in a much larger group that had driven off cattle. And if one of the boys was caught eating some of that beef, then he too could be rounded up. And there was a kind of um, a casualness, I suppose, uh, an insidiousness in the colonial court. And even to go back to this elderly man, Yarnam Guna, it was said about him in court, well, we don't know if he was personally involved or not, but he's one of them, therefore he's as guilty as the others. You know, so mm. people could be judged guilty just by belonging to yeah, a certain group. Yeah, yeah, by association. But um, you, you mentioned this, um, the history wars, and that was really true. You asked what sparked my interest, and I should say that they also fed into it. Because I remember thinking, gosh, you know, I've read this, these very interesting books like Other Side of the Frontier by Henry Reynolds, and you know, these other books, and I thought oh, you know, are we meant to now disbelieve what they've said? Uh, so I wanted to look in the archives for myself and what I saw was material. Yeah, and some of it's very shocking. Um, some of it mm. is very difficult to read and, and there's no doubt in my mind when you see people like the former Governor Lachlan Macquarie in his own hand saying to take Aboriginal men and hang them from the trees to make examples of them or you read in the newspaper in the 1830s, you know, an Aboriginal man being brought from Newcastle to Sydney to go on trial. He was just left naked and chained around the ankle on the deck of the mm. ship taking him to Sydney. You know, it's just 
you read these things for yourself in the mm. handwriting of the people involved in the newspapers, it, it just leaves no doubt at all. There's no room to doubt of the terrible things that transpired across the continent, um, you know, for, for many decades. And, and, you know, we still feel the resonances of that today. It's not like this is just all something that happened in the past that we can forget about today, obviously. Oh, no, definitely. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's you know, um, whether or not, like, whether or not um, we actually know what happened, you know, or whether or not, you know, um, you know, um, we sort of know what happened in different parts of the country, you know, the relationships, you know, and like one thing I always say about history is that history informs us on the relationships that, you know, we have, um, and in particular that Aboriginal people have had, you know, with, you know, uh, Britain sort of proclaiming, you know, the East Coast to be a colony, but then also later, you know, Australia, you know, as its identity, you know, that, you know, we're very well informed, you know, through, um, our history through our trauma, through that sort of transgenerational trauma that has affected, you know, all, you know, if not all Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people on this continent. Um, but then also, you know, it's sort of that, that, that other part of, you know, knowing sort of um, that this history was sort of hidden from us, you know, maybe for that, those exact reasons as well, um, you know, to sort of, and I think you know, um, one of the reasons why those things are sort of one justified or, or denied is sort of to to maybe justify sort of um, that you know this continent you know, you know either was you know taken you know taken peacefully or whatever you know, but it's it, it sort of just it sort of has a justification. It seems it has a justification for the treatment of Aboriginal people, regardless, you know. Um, of sort of our circumstances today, you know, um, and 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 I find it very important, like this, this period of time, and you know, that's you know the reason why I'm doing a podcast. But then also, you know, I find it very empowering as well to know that, you know, for 140 years, for roughly around 140 years, you know, Aboriginal people, you know, wherever sort of Europeans uh, went, you know, that, that they were met, you know. Um, you know, they were met by a front line of sort of Aboriginal men and Aboriginal women and, you know, Aboriginal people in general, you know, met them and said, you know, told them, you know what I mean, like, um, you take more and, you know, like, we're going to go to war and whether or not that's what they said, but essentially this is what happened in, in different parts of the country as well. So it's, you know, um, and as a result of that, you know, uh, this history of incarceration of Aboriginal people, you know, began you know, um, as a result, you know, like you, like you early mentioned, like you mentioned earlier, as early as sort of the 1800s, um, Aboriginal people were getting incarcerated um, for being criminalised due to the fact of them defending themselves or for, or, or honouring, you know, uh, uh, their their family members and their tribe and and their law and their society as well. Like we continue to sort of see that. Um, being played out today as well, you know, with the criminalisation of Aboriginal people, um, you know, just recently, um, you know, uh, the result of sort of the death of, of an Aboriginal army in, in Victoria came back and, 
you know, um, the result is is something that I guess, you know, in in one instance, sort of, you know, Aboriginal people expect that that you know that there isn't going to be any justice because there's been a long history of no justice within this country. But you know, you can only hope and sort of pray and sort of, you know, um, and just wish that you know once there were, there would be justice for Aboriginal people. Uh, and accountability be held against sort of the people who do these things um, you know, to our mob. Um, but sadly, you know, it's sort of this continuation of that and how... Um, and, then, and, and then that sort of just continues to play out that relationship that we have, you know, in this country um, with sort of, you know, uh, the dominant society as well. Sorry, they just went on a bit of a rant. I think you made some really, really important points, and it is, and it's somewhat depressing as a historian when you see the same patterns playing out again and again and again and again, and then people say, "Well, how are things going to change?" And it's still an open question. How do you affect genuine change? That's after it. a couple of hundred years of the same sorts of patterns playing out. Mm. Well, yeah, that, that, that's it, you know. Um, um, you know, you brought it to my attention that as early as sort of 1804, uh, when the penal colonies were getting set up, you know, Aboriginal people were sort of, you know, literally being taken there um, and imprisoned, you know, um, and you know, the incarceration of young people, um in sort of in Western Australia, you know, was happening, you know, um, and, you know, as it's like, and like, I'll be honest, like, I didn't know it, but, you know, it was sort of something that you wouldn't second guess when somebody would say these things as well. Like, yeah, now nah, Australia has this history, but, you know, I didn't actually know the facts behind that. Or, you know, like your article in the conversation, um, which you put out a couple of years ago, 2018, um, in regards to sort of Aboriginal deaths in custody, um, how and you mentioned on the podcast just before that in in the nineteen eighteen fifty sorry you know there was sort of an investigation into the deaths of Aboriginal people um, in these penal colonies as well. Like you know it's not the first time that I guess this sort of justice system that was here sort of questioned you know the, um, the motives or sort of you know um, what was happening or how it was happening. Um, and whether it was justifiable or not, um, but you know they were questioning sort of the the high level of of deaths of Aboriginal people. You know, it's it's crazy that yeah, you know, um, we're two centuries sort of, you know, um, we're you know we're we're looking at sort of two different time frames um, and two issues that are inextricably linked due to sort of the the existence of. Uh, you know, Aboriginal people, the resistance, the colony, and sort of the exploitation, you know, we're seeing the same things being played out again and again and again. Oh, whether or not whether or not there was a sort of a cutoff period and, and it stopped, but, you know, it, it, it's a stark reminder of, you know, like what I said before about history, of the relationships that we have. Um, yeah, no, um, this is like, this episode for myself has been very eye-opening and, um you know, um, yeah, like very insightful. Um, 
because like I said, you know, off air before we started the podcast as well, um, that eventually, you know, one of the reasons why, you know, I'm doing this podcast is to do a much larger podcast um, about sort of this period of time where it's just sort of me sort of telling the story of, of, of what's happening, you know, putting a timeline to it, putting a narrative to it, and then using, you know, uh, my voice to sort of tell that. Um, when I started doing this podcast, you know, I sort of just wanted to focus on sort of, you know, the Dundalee and the Pemaway and the way the Waliar and the, the Yagan and the Mosquito and, you know, all these sort of different amazing sort of Aboriginal frontier figures, heroes, you know, who, who made the ultimate sacrifice. But then, you know, as I sort of got further and further and further into sort of this, you know, 12 episodes into this podcast, I realised that, you know, um, as important, you know, as important as those figures are for that time or, or for today, you know, all these other things that were happening, you know, are as important as well, you know, um, the massacres were as a result of the resistance and the resistance was as a result of the massacres and the incarceration of Aboriginal people was a result of, you know, the resistance and, you know, in the middle of these two things is two opposing, you know, laws and two opposing societies that weren't going to take a backward step. Um, and yeah, like, like, yeah, you know, um, I just think this is a really great episode and I, and I do thank you for coming on and having this yarn, um, with us as well. Um, and if anybody is, uh, listening and paying attention as well, um, which I hope you are, cause you know, I'm certainly am paying attention and I think this is a great conversation. And podcast. Um, but, you know, um, Kristen has written some amazing books as well. Um, and before I go, I would love for you to plug them and where and where people could sort of uh, get a copy of these books uh, as well. But then also, you know, I'll ask you something else in closing as well. Okay, thanks so much, Bo. Well, you can get my book about Aboriginal convicts. Um, I think that's still fairly easily obtained. So it was published by UNSW Press right back in 2012 now. So Aboriginal convicts can be either bought or ordered through your local bookshop if you want to support your local book mm. provider or you can buy online. And these days with the pandemic, I think more people are getting stuff online so we don't have to go out of our houses as much. My um, book about the convicts sent from New Zealand so Aboriginal Convicts does talk about the Māori Convicts and it also talks about the Khoi and San people from the Cape Colony, which is now South Africa, that were sent here. I also have a book that came out at the end of 2017, Cleansing the Colony, and that looks at uh, a wide range of people that were sent as convicts from New Zealand over to Van Diemen's Land, Tasmania nowadays. And lots of people, most people in New Zealand didn't know and I didn't know growing up in New Zealand that we'd sent people from all different backgrounds um, over here either. That book's a bit harder to get in Australia, but if you do online book shopping, you can jump online and get it through one of those online providers. Mm, mm, yeah, yeah. Um, and well, my stuff on the conversation you can get for free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, well, well I, I just, I just googled. Yeah, I just, cool. sorry, um, I just googled um, eighteen fifties um, Aboriginal death and custody investigation, and it sort of led me to click on a link to the conversation to your article as well. So, 
Um, you know, I just shared that on my social media because um, it's something I want to check out and read a bit more a little bit later um, as well. But I'd love to sort of get you back on in the future as well to have a yarn about cleansing the colony um, and a sort of more in-depth look at sort of um, – yeah, obviously we would chat about you know this uh, current issue as well in terms of you know the incarceration of Aboriginal people, but you know the look at sort of you know looking at um, the incarceration of Maori men and also you know um, African men from sort of what now is South Africa, I believe. I don't even know that's what you were referencing um, when you were, when you kept saying that as well. So you know. Um, Eventually, because I left half in the 19th century, I think, by sorry. Yeah, no, that, no, <laughs> Sometimes a, I forget because half my head's in the 19th century yeah, yeah. and half of it's with us today. Yeah, no, that's all good. Um, and I guess sort yeah, of yeah. just like my closing question um, to you, and it's pretty much like, you know, to all the, the people I get on the podcast as well, just talking about like the importance of sort of, you know, understanding this history and sort of um, acknowledging this history and recording this history and, you know, how important – is it, you know, um, to have this history, one, accessible, but then also knowing this history as well, like what, what did happen, um, how it was carried out, you know, the fact that Māori men and also, you know, African men uh, from, from, uh, from South Africa, you know, were sent here, you know, and then also, you know, um, the incarceration of Aboriginal children, you know, was was continuing, you know, as early as, um, you know, the, 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 the 1850s? Yeah, I, look, I think it's incredibly important for us to come to terms with these histories, even though they are really difficult histories, mm. at best unpleasant, <laughs> you know, really, really tough histories. But I think one of the things about Australian history, contact history, frontier wars and history mm-hmm. is that they're not hugely different from those that happened elsewhere wherever the British invaded, right? And I think one of the things that Australia needs to come to terms with, like it, it's really quite easy to blame, or, you know, it's the settlers, uh, it's these convicts out at the far reaches of civilization. But um, then everyone can blame them and it wasn't really like, you know, us. But we realise that it's really the British Army. It's an invasion. It's lots of soldiers are involved and, of course, police and so forth as well. And a lot of Aboriginal people, thousands of Aboriginal people, putting up strong resistance to that. When we appreciate the scale and the type of warfare that went on across this continent, then we might be better positioned to start to come to terms with what happened back then and where that left everyone today. And Mm. then, you know, how do you move forward from that? But I think, I know, you know, in South Africa, they had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission at the end of apartheid to try and come to terms with their own very difficult Histories, but I think we sort of we still there's still room for Australia to have a real reckoning around these difficult histories, so that everyone can have a, a deeper understanding. I mean, I don't think we all have to know every um, every dreadful thing that happened because it would be very overwhelming for people. But to have an appreciation of the types of things that happened and, and who was perpetrating it, 
And the, the, you know, the role of the British military in particular, I think, um, has been overlooked. And perhaps some people still don't acknowledge the extent and the effectiveness at mm. certain kinds and places of Aboriginal resistance either. Yeah. Oh, hell yeah, definitely. Um, <coughs> um, totally. Um, the impact that it has on uh, on people today as well. Um, I guess the impact that it has on people who aren't sort of Aboriginal or other people who are affected of that, you know, but, and who benefited from that as well, um, you know, is clear, you know, it, you know, today, you know, is a sort of a clear indication of how people have benefited or continue to benefit, you know, off of what has happened in the past as well. But, you know, I do want to say thank you, you know, for coming on uh, um, the podcast um, on Frontier War Stories and having this chat and sort of, you know, giving up a, an hour of your time to sort of, you know, talk about your amazing research um, that you've done and, you know, and I'm sure that you continue to do as well and look at uh, because, yeah, it is important work and, you know, this um, period of time, you know, needs to sort of be acknowledged and, you know, it's great to see that, you know, yourself and many other people are, you know, in that space of acknowledging what has happened um, and being honest about it as well, you know, being brutally honest, you know, um, as a, as Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people, we know um, our history and we know, you know, we, we don't know all of our history, but we know, you know, like we're a living example of, you know, um, of what has happened to us today, and 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 our emotions, and 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 our well-being today is a result of that history, whether whether we know it or not. Um, so so it's it's amazing to see people acknowledging those things and doing the hard yards to sort of under uncover the massacres and 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 the pillaging and the destroying but then also the resistance and the resilience and and the creativity and and you know just the awesomeness um that aboriginal people use to survive um on the colony as well so you know big thank you um for having this chat with us uh this uh podcast um is available on spotify uh, on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and also Podbean as well. Um, you can also um, you can also uh, donate and support the podcast via um, PayPal. Um, yeah, that'll be awesome. You know, if the listeners can do that, because everything that does, you know, all the donations do go towards uh, this podcast as well. But you know, big thank you uh, for joining us. Um, and uh, you know, this is episode twelve of Frontier War Stories. <laughs>